Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Alrighty, so welcome to episode 10 of Crash Course Catholicism. So this episode is on the cross, okay, Christ's crucifixion and what it means for us as Christians today. Now, the cross is probably the most recognizable image of Christianity, right? Like, you don't even have to be a Christian to know what it is. You instantly, you see it and you know what it signifies. And because we get so used to the image of the cross, we might start to lose sight of what it actually is and what it means. So let's use an analogy to try to see the cross with fresh eyes. So imagine that you were traveling, okay, and you're in a foreign country, you don't know much about it, and you come across a kind of shrine or memorial to a really important figure in this culture. And you decide to go in and take a look. And you walk in and it's a beautiful building. They've clearly gone to so much effort. There's gorgeous kind of carved detail in the walls depicting scenes from this person's life. And so you walk through the shrine and you come to the center, where the centerpiece is, and on this little platform at the center of the shrine is this hand-carved, beautifully made statue of a torture rack. Okay, and on the torture rack is a man sort of spread out in his last kind of gasping agony, right, as he dies. Now, if that happened, you might kind of pull up and be like, whoa, okay, that's kind of a, a negative image to put at the center of this shrine. Like, what's going on there? I thought you loved this guy. And imagine that one of the locals then comes over and starts telling you about this person and how amazing they are and all of the wonderful things they did. And you think, well, why are they not the things carved in marble at the centre of this shrine? Like, why have you drawn attention to this person's like moment of defeat and humiliation? And then this person goes on to say that this isn't just an important figure for our culture. This is our God, right? You would look at them and probably be like, wow, you are crazy. Like, how can you worship someone who has clearly been defeated like this? Or if you could, why would you draw attention to that and not to all of the amazing, impressive things that they did? It would seem crazy and it would be crazy and it is crazy, right? Because, I mean, this is what we do as Christians. We worship a God who died in a horrific, humiliating, torturous execution, alone, abandoned by all of his friends and seemingly hated by everyone. And it's not like we worship him in spite of those things, right? Like we don't try to kind of shove them over to the side and pretend that they're not there and only focus on the amazing things that he did. We treat that moment of incomprehensible suffering and seeming defeat as the moment of victory and power. Like, we have images and statues of a man being tortured and killed everywhere in our churches. And this is the great paradox and even the scandal of the cross. This is why we read in the first letter to the Corinthians that we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Because the cross was and remains, if we really think about it and we really understand what it is, a challenge, right? It's a paradox. So one of my favorite books of all time is a book by G.K. Chesterton called The Ball and the Cross. And in this book, Chesterton refers to the cross as a collision, a clash, a struggle in stone. 
he says the very shape of it is a contradiction in terms. And then he goes on to say a bunch of other incredible, profound things about the cross, and you should all read the book because it's amazing. But I really like that image of the cross, even visually, but also existentially, as a clash, right? Now, of course, we can't fully understand the cross without talking about the resurrection, okay? And that's what we're going to do in the next episode. But in this episode, we're going to focus on the cross itself and how that paradoxical mix of suffering and joy and redemption and defeat actually sits right at the heart of of Christian life, of what we are called to as Christians. So the cross is a kind of madness, but, and this is key, it isn't a kind of illogical, demented madness, right? It's the madness of love, of radical love. This is the furthest extreme of radical, self-sacrificing love. And that kind of love is challenging, right? I mean, it was challenging for Jesus' contemporaries, and this is why they wanted to crucify him in the first place. So the Catechism, in the first paragraph on this section of Christ's crucifixion, talks about this, that the reason why the Pharisees wanted to crucify Christ in the beginning was that he was a really controversial figure for the Jews. Point number 576 says, In the eyes of many in Israel, Jesus seems to be acting against the essential institutions of the chosen people. So in other words, Jesus is breaking the rules, and he's breaking really big rules, okay? So like the first and most kind of obvious example of that is the Sabbath. Yeah, Jesus does stuff on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no. You weren't supposed to do anything. Or the way that he shows mercy when the law requires strict justice. So when the woman is brought to him who has been caught in the act of adultery, he just says to her, go and sin no more. Or the fact that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Like for us today, we might hear those words and sort of, they don't mean much to us, right? Like I've never met a tax collector and I know in an abstract way that they were sort of outcasts of society, but it doesn't really mean much to me. But if you think about it in contemporary terms, it's like if you had a public figure who was regularly having lunch with, like, corrupt politicians and petty criminals, right? You might sort of start to look at them and be like, okay, is there something dodgy about this guy? And then, worst of all, Jesus starts telling people that their sins are forgiven. And the Jews knew that this was something that only God could do. And if you remember from the episode on Jesus, they were not aware that the Messiah would be God himself. So this was hugely scandalous. This, you know, mere human to them is getting around telling people that he's God. So all of these things were quite confronting, and we can kind of see why, right? Like, even though we also can see the flip side, that Jesus isn't abolishing the law, he's here to fulfill it in his own words, you know, and we can also see from the gospel the evidence of the fact that he actually is God, he is who he says he is. We see through his miracles and his teaching and that this is a person that we can trust. But at the same time, radical love is is confronting and an invitation to to participate in it and accept it is can be difficult and we can respond to that invitation from God in a number of ways so for instance in someone like Nicodemus we see an example of like the right response to that and actually if you haven't seen it I would recommend watching the scene from The Chosen where Nicodemus comes and visits Jesus at night I reckon it's the best scene in that whole series it's really beautiful because it perfectly encapsulates this moment where you know Nicodemus is genuinely frightened and unsure and concerned and he's like what are the implications of this for me and for my people and you know this is this is a big deal for him but 
the first thing he does is he comes to Christ, okay, and he says, okay, help me to understand. On the other hand, you had other Pharisees and chief priests and Jewish people who looked at Jesus and were horrified by him. They didn't seek to kind of understand what he was saying and make sense of it. They didn't pay attention to the signs and wonders that he was doing. They just immediately shut down and were like, all right, this is confronting and difficult and I don't understand it and I'm going to respond with anger and fear. And they spend all of their time trying to catch Jesus out and provoke him and get him to say the wrong thing. Okay, So it's a response that lacks charity and, and it's that response where, like, I don't know if you've experienced it before, I know that I have, when you're sort of confronted by something or something concerns you and your first response is is one that doesn't come from a place of charity or trust in God and you immediately lose your peace you start to feel kind of bitter and restless and angry and and like unhappy and this isn't okay you know that's that that kind of red flag of a response that doesn't come from God because if something comes from God, even if it's anger, right, there is a place for anger. Jesus went around upending tables in the temple, okay? But if it also takes away our peace, then it's a sign that it's not coming from God. And you see how the Pharisees throughout the New Testament get more and more fired up and hot under the collar and they just want to take him down to the point where it boils over and they're like, okay, we have to do something. Either everyone's going to get swept up in this and then the Romans are going to come in and, you know, destroy us all, or we take this guy down. And then Caiaphas says, and it says in the gospel that he prophesied that it is expedient that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should suffer. Okay, so they basically justify it. They're like, well, things are going to get out of hand, so we've got to kill this guy. And then, of course, we all know what happens next, right? They arrest Jesus and then hand him over to the Romans to be condemned to death, and then he is crucified. Now, we might hear all of that and sort of think, wow, like, those guys, that's that's pretty bad, right? Like, they are responsible for the death of Jesus. Like, it kind of doesn't get much worse than that. You are responsible for the death of God. (laughs) And yes, in one sense, you know, this group of Jewish people handed Jesus over to be crucified, and they did that deliberately, and they're culpable for that. At the same time, though, it's not exactly correct to say that they are responsible for the death of Christ. So we have to remember that Christ himself said to Pontius Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. And also we can remember all of those times in the Gospels when the Jews are like actively trying to kill Jesus and then he just slips through the crowd and walks away, which is, to be honest, my favorite, well, one of my favorite bits. I just think it's the most badass thing in the gospel. Like, you can just imagine all of these people getting so fired up and, like, frothing in the mouth. They're so angry. They want to kill Jesus. And then the next minute, they're looking around being like, wait, where'd he go? <laughs> and then they turn around and he's, like, 100 meters down the road being like, bye. <laughs> so Jesus had total power, right? He could do what he wanted. And if he didn't want to die, he wouldn't have died. So the crucifixion was part of God's eternal plan, right? He willed that. And why? For us, right? In order to save us from our sins. So if we're going to point the finger at anyone for being responsible for the death of Jesus, we need to point it at ourselves. And not just us in a kind of vague sort of roundabout way of like, oh, yes, people in general. Nah, you, mate, you and me, me and you. We did that. Okay, 
Now, you might hear that and sort of think, yeah, yeah, okay, so we're all responsible for the death of Christ. But, I mean, surely there are some people who are a little bit more responsible for it than others, right? Like Hitler, for example. Surely we can blame him more. Or like, you know, there's a lot of drug lords out there, a lot of mass murderers, and I'm just up the back here, you know, with my little sins and maybe a couple of biggies, but, you know, not so bad. But you might remember from the episode on original sin that it's not just how bad the sin is, right? It's also the person whom you sin against, okay? And if anyone sins against a being of infinite dignity and goodness, i.e. God, that's serious, right? And it has infinite consequences, and it required an infinite being, i.e. God, to stand in our place and to offer a sacrifice of infinite value in order to pay that infinite debt. And I know I've just said infinite about 10 times, but I want to ram this point home that every single person who commits a sin is guilty, right? And this is something that the catechism makes note of in point number 598. It says, we must regard as guilty all those who continue to relapse into their sins. Now, this is the point at which some people might start saying, oh, here we go. See, this is the church is all about guilt, right? It's all about telling people you're a terrible person. You're the reason why Jesus was crucified. It's all your fault. You know, you should feel bad. Okay, but that viewpoint leaves out something really big and really crucial. Okay, which is this another way of saying I am responsible for the death of Christ is to say, look what Christ did for me. Okay, that's like the flip side of that coin. By saying that we are all responsible for the sufferings of Christ, the church isn't saying like, you are so bad, look at what you did. Okay, it's saying, hey, Christ went through all of that because he loves you specifically. And he would have done it all, even if you were the only person that existed, even if everyone else was gone, Jesus would have gone through all of that just for you. So here is where we come back to that clash, that paradox, that at the very moment that we are reminded of our guilt, we are simultaneously reminded of how profoundly, unspeakably, infinitely loved we are. By the way, speaking of how loved we are, this is probably a good time to point out the fact that God did not have to become man and die on the cross, okay? He didn't have to do that. It wasn't strictly necessary. He could very easily have just kind of, you know, clicked his fingers from heaven and been like, okay, I forgive you. So St. Augustine puts it this way. He says, other possible means were not lacking on God's part because all things are equally subject to his power. So in other words, God is all powerful, right? He could have done anything. But what he chose to do was to send his son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, to become a human being and sacrifice himself on our behalf in order to pay the price for our sins. So the way that it's worded in 2 Corinthians is God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that is is a sentence that you could spend like a day reflecting on and praying about. It's profound. So why is that? Why did God want to to do that, to become a human being and suffer so horrifically for us? Well, I mean, the obvious answer is because he is love itself, right? And love isn't 
concerned with what is strictly necessary. It goes above and beyond. God wanted to do the most he could to show his love for us completely. So St. Augustine goes on to say, What else could have been so necessary to build up our hope and to free the minds of mortals despairing than that God should show us how highly he valued us and how greatly he loved us? And what could be more clear and evident proof of God's great love than that the Son of God, so undeserving of evil, should bear our evils? So, in other words, it's an expression of perfect love for God to do this for us. Okay, he's, he's going to the absolute end point of radical love. He didn't just forgive us from up in heaven. He became one of us and took on our punishment himself, even though he was completely innocent. Now, we might hear that and sort of think, hang on a second. If God took on the punishment for my sins, then how come I still suffer, right? Like, how do I still feel the effects of original sin? Isn't that like the punishment for sin? Well, in order to answer that question, we first have to distinguish between what we call temporal and eternal punishment. Okay, so quick recap of original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, the gates of heaven were closed, right? And that is what we call eternal punishment. So not in the sense that like it goes forever and it can't be revoked, in the sense that it affects our eternal destiny, So if I die and I'm not in the state of grace, then I can't go to heaven, okay? That's eternal punishment. But even if I re-establish my relationship with God, okay, once my sins have been forgiven, there still remains what the church calls temporal punishment. And this refers to like a kind of restitution of order that has to occur when I've done the wrong thing. So we can think of it this way. Imagine that you're having a massive fight with your mum, okay? And during the course of this fight, you smash her favourite vase, right? You throw it on the ground and then you sort of storm off to your room yelling, I hate you and I never want to see you again. Okay, and then like an hour later, you've cooled off, you come out of your room and you say, I'm really sorry, mum. Like that that was really inappropriate. I shouldn't have talked to you like that. Um, I, I'm really sorry. Can you forgive me? And then your mum says, of course I forgive you, you know. You're completely forgiven, no strings attached, total free forgiveness, okay? She gives you a big hug and you're like, okay, my mum forgives me, we're good. And then your mum picks up the pieces of the vase and hands them to you and says, okay, now could you glue the vase back together? Imagine if you kind of turned to her aghast and said, but mother, I thought you'd forgiven me. Like, this is completely unfair. What do you mean you want me to fix the vase? Like, you've forgiven me. I don't have to do anything. Now, unless you were a huge brat, I doubt that you would ever actually do that, okay? Because we know that forgiveness doesn't mean that there aren't any consequences, right? doesn't mean that we don't have to fix the thing that we broke. Even then, though, we can't forget that God is mercy, right? He is mercy itself. And so, you know, he is constantly trying to find ways to alleviate that temporal suffering, even though he does allow us to experience it. I mean, let's think about it, right? Like a God who is willing to become a human being and die in the most horrific way possible for love of us is not going to let us suffer arbitrarily, right? He's only going to let us suffer if it actually helps us. And this leads us to the second reason why God permits us to experience suffering, even after his death and resurrection. 
So St. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, he says, In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, we might hear that and sort of think, well, hang on, what do you mean lacking? What could be lacking from Christ's sacrifice on the cross, right? As we already said, he's an infinite being who has paid our infinite debt. And this is something that the Catechism affirms. In point number 613, it says, Christ's death is the paschal sacrifice that accomplishes the definitive redemption of men. Okay, so Christ's death is definitive. Okay, there is only one and it only happened once and it's never going to happen again. Okay, so those gates of heaven are open and they will remain open. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that I can't personally lose my access to sanctifying grace through serious sin. I can, but those gates remain open. I can always come back through the sacrament of confession. Yeah, I can be reunited with God once again. So Jesus never has to sacrifice himself again. Right. Okay, that is done just the one time and it will never be repeated. The other thing that the Catechism tells us in point 613 is that Christ's sacrifice was unique, okay, and we've already covered this, that no one else could do it. Only Christ could. And I mention this because it's important to affirm here that without Christ, my suffering means nothing, right, in terms of my eternal salvation. doesn't matter how much I suffer, how many sacrifices I offer up, how many times I say sorry to God, how much I try to earn my salvation, I will never achieve that, okay? There is nothing that I could do to earn my salvation. Only Jesus could do that. But through his death and resurrection, Christ makes it possible for us to unite our sufferings with his redemptive suffering, Okay, so the Catechism in point number 618 says, Because in his incarnate divine person, he has in some way united himself to every person, the possibility of being made partners in the Paschal mystery is offered to all people. So let's reflect on that phrase. He has in some way united himself to every person. So God's life, his divine life flows through our veins. So even though I can't do anything on my own, I can't earn a single thing on my own, if I unite my suffering to Christ's redemptive suffering, then suddenly that suffering becomes supercharged. So one analogy that comes to mind is that there is a um, a very large and steep hill near my apartment and I have a bike, right? And I can't get up it. <laughs> I can't get up that hill. Doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how hard I try, I, I get like a quarter of the way up and then I cock it and I gotta get off my bike because I can't and I push it up the rest of the way. Now, recently I became one of those terrible people who owns an electric bike. Okay. <laughs> so now I'm one of those people who like breezily kind of pedals past all the gasping commuters, you know, with back, practically with my hands behind my head being like, la 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 la. It's so easy, right? I hop on my bike, I start pedaling and it just zooms up the hill. Now, the thing about this electric bike is that you have to pedal in order for the motor to start going, okay? If you're not pedaling, nothing will happen. And if you stop pedaling, the motor will stop and you'll come to a sudden halt, okay? So you've got to keep 
going. But at the same time, you're not the one making the bike move. Okay, the motor is making the bike move. And if you were to switch off the motor on that bike, there is absolutely no way you would get to the top of that hill. Okay. At the same time, for whatever reason, the manufacturers have made it so that you have to pedal. Okay. And it's kind of like us. So you might have heard the quote from St. Augustine that says, God who created you without you will not save you without you. So it's basically this idea that, of course, God is infinitely powerful, right? And he can do whatever he wants. And he earned us access to his sanctifying grace. But at the same time, he wants us to also participate in that journey of our salvation and sanctification, even if we can't earn anything whatsoever on our own, okay? So let's return to the analogy of having a fight with your mom. Okay, say that you're sitting at the dining table putting the vase back together and your mum comes over and is like let me help you with that okay because she loves you and she's not interested in what's strictly just or necessary she wants to help you out and so your mum sits down and grabs the glue and starts putting the vase back together and you suddenly realize hey she's actually doing a really good job of this in fact she's doing a way better job than this in fact she's infinitely better than me at gluing bits of a vase back together And then you kind of go, well, I guess I'm not needed here. And you hop up from the table and go, thanks, mom. And then go to your room and start playing video games. Now, I don't know about you, but there is something kind of like stomach clenchingly depressing about that image. It's like, oh, it's awful because it's it lacks love. (laughs) Not that the mother loves the child any less, but that the child doesn't seem to love the mother very much. Now, if you'd stayed at the table and helped your mum, maybe you wouldn't have contributed greatly to the restoration of the vase, right? Maybe your mum would have done most of the expert work, okay, and you would have mainly been passing her pieces. But there would have been something really bonding about that experience, yeah? There, There is union and love in that, and it's like us and Christ. Christ saved us from our sins, not just so that we can wander off to our bedrooms and play video games, but because he loves us and he wants to be close to us. He wants us to unite our sufferings to him as a path to ultimate union with him in heaven, because that's ultimately what the cross is. It's our path to heaven. So Pope St. John Paul II, in a 1984 apostolic letter called Salvifici Dolores, writes, Christ in his cross and resurrection does not abolish temporal suffering from human life, nor free from suffering the whole historical dimension of human existence. It nevertheless throws a new light upon this dimension and upon every suffering, the light of salvation. This is the light of the gospel that is, of the good news. And here we come to the final and greatest paradox of the cross, that it is the good news, right? The cross isn't just something we have to get through. We don't have to just suffer because we're in a broken world and that's our punishment and we just have to get through it. No, if we unite our sufferings to Christ on the cross, our suffering can become the source of our greatest and most profound joy. It can sanctify us. It can be our path to heaven. And when we try to be happy despite the cross or in the absence of the cross, we only get part of the way, right? We might just end up experiencing a kind of empty hedonism. If, if, and only if, we unite our sufferings to Christ's suffering on the cross, they take on a whole new dimension, 
right? They become meaningful in in a new way. And they can actually be the source of our greatest and most deep happiness. So there's this quote from the Brothers Karamazov in which this monk says to a young man, he tells him, here is my challenge to you. Find joy in suffering. And it's such a simple quote, but I often come back to it because of that that word in, joy in suffering, that it's not because of suffering, right? Like I'm some sort of masochist and it's not joy in the absence of suffering. It's that in that place of, of, of pain and discomfort, right in that clashing center point of the cross, that is where I will find happiness. And if you want to consider this further, I would suggest counterintuitively going to the joyful mysteries of the rosary. Because TBH, I have this theory that the joyful mysteries of the rosary could so easily have been called the stressful mysteries of the rosary. Like if you actually look at the events, what's actually happening, they are all potentially incredibly stressful, right? Like a teenage girl gets told by an angel that she's going to be the mother of God. And then she's like, okay. And then he leaves. And it's like, but what do I do now? Like, I'm not living with my husband. What if people find out? What if I get stoned to death? Like, what's going to happen to me? Or, you know, the fact that she gives birth to Jesus in a cave. Like, they're literally homeless. And then suddenly all of these shepherds are there. And there are kings. And, like, all of these random strangers who are coming in. And that could be potentially very overwhelming. I know I would get overwhelmed. Clearly I'm not Mary. (laughs) Or the fact that then they take our Lord to the temple and Simeon comes up out of nowhere, this total random, comes over and is like, oh, hi, he's so cute. By the way, a sword will pierce your heart. Or like the finding of the child Jesus in the temple. More like the losing of the child Jesus in Jerusalem, right? That's incredibly stressful. They couldn't find Jesus for three days. Now, okay, I'm obviously not suggesting that Mary was actually completely stressing out and she was some sort of stress head. What I'm saying is that if I were in those situations... I would not be very happy, okay? I would be really struggling. And what we can see is that there is the potential for a lot of suffering in each of those situations. And yet, these are the joyful mysteries. Not just like there's some joy in them. They are the joyful mysteries. So clearly, there's something in here that the church wants us to see. What makes these joyful mysteries? What gives Our Lady joy? Why is she happy in these moments that would, you know, freak anyone else out? And at the heart of that is the answer. She pondered all of these things in her heart. That and the fact that she stood there at the foot of the cross. Mary had a capacity to suffer and also to experience incredible joy because she stuck close to Christ and she pondered the things he said in her heart. And as Christians, that is what we are all called to. We are called to find perfect joy forever in heaven with Christ through the suffering that we experience on this earth. Okay, well, that's all that we've got time for this week. Next episode, we're going to be looking at the other half of this conversation, right? Okay, the resurrection of Christ, which I'm very much looking forward to. So I hope that you have a fantastic fortnight and I will look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Bye.